I'm going to briefly talk about concentration meditation as a daily practice. Now, we've talked about it throughout the day. We've woven it in. Uh, but, but basically, this can be a, and is a good daily practice. We don't view any meditation practice as the only practice that you should do. Our viewpoint is more that it's kind of like we're artists and we learn how to use different paint brushes at different times. So when to use this practice? This is a practice that's good to employ when things are particularly stressful in your life, when you're feeling anything but serene or tranquil. So it's a good practice to just settle down and when you do your meditations, uh, whether you do daily meditation or multiple times a day, to just be with the breath and just let yourself settle. Notice if you can be with it when you're off the cushion Again, particularly there's places you can, it's things like stoplights, waiting for elevators in line. Uh, those are natural places where you're, you're just present. You're not needing to do anything, so you can just rest on the breath, and that helps develop and in, invite more serenity and stability into your awareness. Uh, people will often talk with us about their daily practice, and they will it seems that the daily practice, people do a lot more evaluation. And they'll say, oh, I had a really good meditation, a really bad meditation. It was, you know, didn't do well. And um, one of the things that Tina and I realized is we, when we sit, we don't have the expectation that's going to be good or bad. We just, you know, we meditate because we like to meditate, and it's going to be the way it is. Uh, we don't try to have no thinking. We don't try to get never get pulled off the, off the breath. We come and we just experience the meditation as it is. We do our best to be with the breath and to rest there as much as possible. So part of it is recognizing if, you, if you're bringing in expectations to your meditation, that's gonna get in the way. So the more you can just be with the meditation and allow whatever else is happening to be there too, that could be helpful. To not, to not feel like it's, it's not a success unless you have a really clear quality, deep meditation. We think about meditation, and well, people ask us uh, things like, I, well, I don't meditate every day, but I'd really like to. What can I do to meditate every day? And what we found is that we have two categories of activity in life. And one category, things like bathing, brushing our teeth, eating, that's in the must-do category. And then things like cleaning the garage and you know, doing this kind of thing is, is really the discretionary, the maybe list. And a lot of people keep meditation on that list. And so if I, if I, only, if I get time today, I'm really, really going to meditate. And then what happens is they run out of time. They just, you know, the morning is going to be good, then they get up, well, I got up late. And then when I get home from work, I'm going to meditate, and then it's time to interact with their significant other. And so we just found if you can put it into the category of the brushing your teeth, the eating category. Uh, like, like we, we don't talk every morning about, gee, are we going to meditate today? Do we feel like we have time? <laughs> you know, let, let's look at our schedules. And we just know that after we have breakfast, we sit. And so we don't even talk about it. Just we finish breakfast, we you know, put away the breakfast dishes, and we get our timer out. So it, it isn't a discretionary question. And that really helps a lot to just take it out because, of course, our minds can find many reasons and excuses why later is better. So part of it, too, with the daily practice is the recognizing that we 
have a certain commitment to our own unfolding. We're drawn to do our own practice. And that showing up for the meditation is a way of validating and recognizing our own commitment to our own unfolding. So it's, it's really, again, this, this woman here talked about it, it's that wholesome desire we're getting in contact with and we're furthering, which is really helpful. Uh, mentioned also earlier that this is not the exclusive practice we do. We do other practices, and we do them, though, for a chunk of time. We'll do them for a matter of weeks or a month or two months, and we'll decide in advance. We're going to turn to concentration practice and do it for a month, and then that's what we do. Because otherwise, again, it gets into that evaluation stage. Well, today I don't feel like doing it. I'm feeling more... You know, I'm going to do this one today. And, and what happens is we just don't give ourselves a chance to do a deep dive in home practice with any one practice. And so we'll, we have, again, a number that we'll do, you know, metta, vipassana, um, the samatha, and then decide what we want to do and then do it in that period of time. So that can be really helpful to have that commitment. And also the idea of sila. Tina talked about this as being one of the three stages of practice, wholesomeness. This is not just a retreat practice. This is a home practice. We're lay people. So it's looking at your life. Where are there ways that you can introduce more wholesomeness into your life? And one of the big ways today in this society that we can do it is to be aware of what we consume. And mostly I mean by entertainment or electronic contact. So we can decide you know, what's wholesome, what's supportive, what's not supportive. I mean, you can see this, people with their phones, you go into restaurants and people are just compulsively looking at their phones and texting and doing things. And so there's a way where we're, we're inviting a certain distraction into our lives. So part of it is our outside, as much as possible, needs to match our inside. And so you're having meditative experience, you're having depth in your meditation. How does that get supported in your life? What do you need to do so that's supportive and expressed? And this is a way that you can, you can do it. And then with the sila, we find if you make these wholesome changes, then it supports your practice more. So sitting is more comfortable. There's less distraction. And particularly those who are prone to remorse, who think a lot about, oh, I, got, I wish I'd done that, or I'm sorry I said that. Or, um, well, if you're, the more wholesome life you're living, the less remorse you're going to see in your meditation. So it's one way to clean things up. And then we've also told people, you know, it's never too late to try to clean up your past unskillful actions. Whatever that means to you, if it means writing a letter to some old friend and saying, gosh, I'm sorry we you know, ended our friendship in such a bad way. I, you know, we were young and it made sense then and I'm just really sorry that I did my part of it. Or whatever it happens to be. If you feel congruent about doing that, it can really make a difference in your own internal sense of yourself, and also, again, we see on retreat practice, there's just less remorse coming up. You've tried to do it. It doesn't mean the other person has to accept it, forgive you, or do you know, what you want. It's your side of it that you're, you're recognizing. And people sometimes won't even mail or send communications. They'll simply write them, and that sometimes is enough to just let that energy get uh, discharged. Any comments on home practice? Yeah, just... We mentioned earlier that we will periodically, really like once a year, we tend to do this around the uh, Christmas, New Year's time. We sort of reflect on the past year and look to the next year. And and um, we've had a number of times when we've really 
considered our sila in our own lives and do we want to kind of take it to the next level? So, like, we don't have TV broadcast coming into our home. We do watch DVDs and things, but that's a place where at one point we did have that, and now we don't. And it was, you know, we're not suggesting that for everybody, but it was a way where we just wanted to limit our consumption of that. And then a few years after that, we decided that we really wanted to think about whether we wanted to keep drinking alcohol. And so we decided we wanted to stop that completely. And it wasn't that easy. It was actually a lot harder than we expected because of social contacts and other things. And we just brought, again, brought a lot of consciousness to, like, if we were going to drink, why were we doing it? And what was behind it? And ultimately, we decided that we just wanted to stop. So again, we're not saying that's for everybody or even recommending that you do it, but these have just been ways that over the years we continue to really go you know, and ask ourselves, what is right for me in my life now? And what is the most congruent way I can live? And are there things that I'm not doing that I would like to have more congruence between my inner experience and my outer reality of how I'm living my life? And part of the alcohol was really we realized how much time we were spending on retreat and cultivating clear consciousness and awareness. And the idea that we were specifically clouding that deliberately was like, wow, this is really interesting. We have this one intention and we have this other behavior and they don't exactly meet. And that began the exploration for us about it. And I tell people what we finally got to the bottom of alcohol consumption was we found that any day that ended in Y was a worthy day of having alcohol. So that's how it ended up. Say that again. Any, any day that ended in Y, that was a day that was good for alcohol. Well, yeah. what we really found was that there were two reasons. When we really sat there and we were like, okay, what's actually happening as we're you know, going for the glass of wine? It was either to celebrate something or because we had a hard day. And we realized that to us, neither of those were really good reasons because we can celebrate without it. And if we're having a, a, a difficult day, maybe we actually need to be with what's happening with that and feel it. And it was interesting so. how many days fell into one category or the other. <laughs> there were a lot, and yeah. So, some days had both, right? <laughs> but it's just a matter of exploring and seeing what's, what's important, what wants to be reflected, and how to do it best, that's all. Yeah, well, and, and we... The next one that has come up, we have this group we're part of called the Neurodharma Group, where it's spiritual teachers and neuroscientists, and we meet monthly here in Marin. And, and so this whole paleo diet thing, we had a whole meeting on, on healthy eating, and I couldn't believe it. Almost everyone there was doing the paleo diet, but people were just really struggling with this meat consumption, you know, because we've been vegetarians at different times. and. And um, so, you know, there's so many different places where we can really think about what's the impact I want to have on the world around me, and yet I want my body to be healthy. And so, again, we're not saying what the right answer is. It's more to bring consciousness to your life in a way that um, isn't just habitual, that we're not just sort of on autopilot. Yes, it's not, it's not unconscious. Yeah. So the last thing we want to talk about is what we call the wisdom of the samatha practice. 
And you, you may know that within Theravada Buddhism, we have the, the sila, the samatha, the vipassana. And normally, it's thought that the, the aspect of wisdom um, is primarily designated to vipassana. And this comes up a lot, you know, where people talk about, well, you know, how, how does that work with the samatha? And, of course, Vipassana translates to insight meditation, So, which is insights into what. So I'd like to just talk about this a little bit and how we've really come to see over the years that we've been teaching that the Samatha practice has its own wisdom, that this isn't reserved in our view and in our experience only for Vipassana. So... Um, we had mentioned that if you really look at the suttas and look at when, when somebody would come to one of the Buddha's talks and ask him how to practice over and over and over and over again, he would talk about doing the summit, doing concentration, and he'd go through a whole kind of rote series of things, and then he'd talk about doing vipassana. So he was clearly pointing people to doing this practice. Um, but... So what do we really mean then in terms of wisdom and the wisdom of the Samatha practice? Well, within Theravadan Buddhism, wisdom, the technical definition of wisdom is really pretty specific. And even though we, we call Vipassana insight meditation, a lot of times people aren't clear insight into what, what does that really mean? And there can be, we can certainly have insights into our psychology. So we can have psychological insights that will arise, which are very valuable, and those also happen in the samatas we were talking about, really you know, coming down that hill on the ice skates and seeing some part of our personality um, identification that's pretty entrenched and pretty tenacious. But that's not really what is pointed to with the term wisdom. So what that's pointing to is insight and wisdom into the three characteristics of existence. So just to go through what these are, these are the dukkha, so the unsatisfactoriness, sometimes this, often this is referred to as suffering, but we really like the translation of unsatisfactoriness. So what this is pointing to is the whole movement of the, the ego, of the personality, to reject our experience, to go out in either desire or aversion or delusion, but to, to leave our direct experience in the moment and to try and get something that isn't here right now. So we leave the moment, we go and try and get something which is a, a desire, and then there's a hope that it's going to get better. So this is the, really the whole movement of the ego is to leave the present moment and to keep searching for that thing that's going to make it better definitively. And, you know, of course, we do have a lot of times that are really wonderful in life and where everything seems to be working, but then that is not going to be permanent. That's going to, you know, it's going to go away. And the good news is that when difficult things are happening, those are impermanent too, so... Um, but this is really the unsatisfactoriness. And to really see that this is an inherent part of the human experience. And, and then also there's a deeper level of dukkha of really seeing the uncontrollability of phenomena. 
So the fact that phenomena are going to be arising and passing in such a way that we really can't control them, no matter how much we try and arrange our lives so things will be the way we want, ultimately we can't control that 100%. So this is, this is suffering and unsatisfactoriness. Then the next characteristic, um, anicca or impermanence, and this is really where Vipassana focuses. So this isn't, there's two ways of seeing impermanence. One is just the idea that everything changes. This is kind of the, the, um, the conventional understanding of impermanence. And a lot of time you'll hear Buddhism talked about as this is what the impermanence is referring to. And, and there is a lot of understanding we can have a non-attachment and understanding that everything changes. But that isn't really the level of impermanence that's being talked about technically in Theravadan Buddhism. It's really about seeing the moment-to-moment arising of phenomena at a very, very minute level and how that is just a constant unfoldment that we can't control and then that leads to the dukkha. So. I don't know if this is making sense, but this is really where Vipassana, if you were to take Vipassana as far as you could possibly go, this is what one can come in touch with, is a level of impermanence that um, can allow us to let go of attachment. And it also, it also points to the third characteristic, which is sometimes translated as no-self, sometimes not-self, this is anatta, so anicca, anatta, and dukkha. And um, this is really the understanding, the, the experience, that what we take ourselves to be in terms of being the personality, the me, actually is an illusion. And so this is where, this is the place where, in our experience and also working with other people, we see that the samatha practice actually creates potentially a lot of opportunities for direct experience of no-self. So when I talked before about the jhana arising and the non-dual state, a non-dual state arises when a no-self, when there is a no-self experience occurring. I don't know if this is making sense. For for a lot of you, I'm sure this will make sense. So within the Samatha practice itself, there are a lot of opportunities to really have direct contact with that experience of no-self. When the thinking stops, when the hindrances are at bay, when our normal way of knowing ourselves through the personality is absent. And this is even without jhana rising. With jhana rising, then there's that the non-dual experience where there can also be the direct um, um, perception of no-self. So I don't know that we mentioned, but in other traditions like in the yogic paths that the Buddha studied in, I mean, there was no Buddhism and the Buddhist, well, there got to be Buddhism, I guess, maybe <laughs> in his day, but when he went out and was on his own path, just like all of us were, there were the yogic traditions. That's what was available. And um, in those traditions, the eighth jhana was the end of the path. That was full enlightenment. And even today, people who practice within those traditions, 
that is the end of the path. That is considered full enlightenment. So we're not saying that we're proposing that, you know, within Theravadan Buddhism, there's the whole Vipassana path, and this is really what the Buddha added to what he learned. But there is a certain kind of wisdom that is available within the Samatha path itself. It's not just a precursor. It's not just a warm-up. You know, if it's taken to a point, not even, we're not even talking about eighth jhana, even first jhana, there can be some really profound um, um, shifts in our perception of what we are and some really profound contact with the mystery that um, are technically the same, they're technically within the scope of wisdom within the Theravadan path. So, you know, over the years, unfortunately, this practice has been, um, as we said, it, there were reasons why it was only taught to monastics who were very far along. And the practice also has been marginalized in certain ways. And we were actually having dinner, I guess it's maybe been a, several years now, ago with another couple who are both Buddhist teachers who actually teach here at Spirit Rock. And one of the teachers, we got, you know, you want to know what Buddhist teachers talk about at dinner, so we'll <laughs> tell you one of the things. Anyway, we were talking about um, this whole teaching that's really more present in Tibetan Buddhism uh, called the Kali Yuga, the Dark Age of Buddhism. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so again, th- this was our discussion. Over What's dinner. the dark age? Is there a dark age? <laughs> what, do, what do different schools think? Right, right. So, and, um, and so the one person had done a lot of research on this, so we really wanted to know what he had learned. And we had a whole conversation about, you know, some people, some scholars think that the Kali Yuga is happening right now. Other people think that maybe it's going to happen. But basically, it's a time within Buddhism when, um, when the access... Some people actually think that right now is a flowering of Buddhism and that Kali Yuga is going to happen. But it really got us interested in thinking about this and understanding more about that whole um, um, belief, really, within Tibetan Buddhism. And we later found that um, the Buddha himself predicted a certain decline of Buddhism that, I mean, we didn't really know the Buddha made predictions, but this was one of the ones that he did, that ter- that Buddhism would um, start to decline from something that would happen within Buddhism, not from external circumstances. And one of the things that he predicted that would get marginalized was concentration. And we just couldn't believe that when we saw that because that really is what had happened up until just recently. Well, and again, it's worth repeating that this was going to be an internal destabilization that as Buddhists, within Buddhism, Buddhists were going to minimize concentration practices and that was one of the factors that was going to lead to the Dharma ending age. Right, the Kali Yuga, sometimes it's called the Dharma ending age. So, you know, we don't know. You can take that for whatever it's worth. But, um, but we've... Was there yes. any cause? 
Well, he, he thought that one of the causes would be from within, within Buddhism, a marginalization of concentration practice. Just because it happened? He predicted it. I, I don't know if he had more insight into what he thought would have caused that or not. There were some other things, too. Um, but anyway, we, you know, it's been a real um, journey for us to have sort of come into this practice not intending to be teachers and to have had um, some kind of natural, whether that's karmic or otherwise, um, connection to it, and then to be handed this baton of teaching that has now spread around the world to the point where, you know, we've had people from like 40 countries contact us. Mm-hmm. We had people from nine countries come to our last, uh, our first month-long retreat that we taught, mm-hmm. you know. So there's something that is just, um, that is within the human consciousness that has kept this practice going for 5,000 years and you are all now part of that. And you may not choose to continue the practice and that's fine, that's really up to you to really follow your own heart. But um, we really feel that it is worthy of consideration in terms of making concentration practice at least a part of your overall set of paintbrushes of practices that you um, have to draw upon in your path as it unfolds over the rest of the course of your life. And it's really, it's been a real honor for us to be able to carry that baton for a few of the, what will become 6,000 years, we hope, um, of people continuing to do this practice and to um, benefit from it. Let's so let's see take we, some questions. See if there's any questions. Maybe, maybe you're questioned out, but we'll give you, <laughs> give you a chance. I'm a little curious we, we got, about how you oh. got started in this concentration practice. Okay. So, well, just so it's on the recording. Yeah. I'm curious about how you two got started with this type of meditation practice, whether you were doing other practices when you came across this, or whether this was your first love, and you expanded from there? Mm-hmm. Well, we can answer that separately, I guess. I had been a Vipassana practitioner for about, let's see, I guess probably at least 20 years by the time I, Spirit Rock started introducing concentration through, m- many of you may not realize that the Brahma Viharas are a concentration practice. So the so metta in particular. The metta, you know, all of the different Brahma Viharas, which we also teach. And when I was doing the month-longs, they started introducing the Brahma Viharas just as a kind of side thing that you would do for five minutes. Um, and then uh, they started offering retreats on metta. And then they started um, having it where a few of us secretly during the month-long could... Uh, do concentration practice. And Guy Armstrong started giving a lot of talks on concentration. One of the, one of the things that actually developed within Theravadan Buddhism was that the teachers started really seeing that to go past a certain point in one's own unfoldment, concentration, there's a lot of thinking among the scholars in particular that it's really required to have at least first jhana to go past a certain point. 
And so the teachers, I think, started getting more interested in it and started introducing it because the students started getting more senior. So anyway, I started doing month, I did a month long where I did mostly the, the Brahm Viharas. And then when I did my year-long solo retreat, this was part of what I did among, among other practices. So it was, for me, it came later. Yeah, for, for me it was a little different. Um, I had contact with some of the counting, uh, counting breath meditation was common in the Zen tradition when I started. But really it was that I, um, I knew people who went off to study with Paul Ksaidao in Burma, and many of them were leaving pretty active, successful lay lives here and going off for long periods of time. And I was so intrigued that they would really jettison their whole life and go off to this faraway place under very difficult conditions and practice. And so at one point, um, they began to be an organiza- they began organizing a retreat, the two-month retreat with the Sayadaw out here. And I was told, oh, we're going to invite you to this retreat. And I said, oh, I had just started a brand new job and all these things. And I said, there's no way I can go. I've got this brand new job and these life circumstances. And I did get the email inviting me. And I really had this kind of disassociative experience where I watched myself hit reply and say, I'm coming for two months, and then hit, hit enter. And I literally was like, who did that? And this was about, I don't know, nine months or something before the retreat. And by the time the retreat happened, Tina and I had met, we had gotten married, and my job circumstances, I was now self-employed. And so I ended up going for the two months. So it ended up happening really in a lot of ways the way it should have. But I was quite surprised by that. And then going, it was just very familiar. We started off and um, you know, the side out said, we'll focus here, and I said, okay. And I just would meditate and come in. How long are you focusing here? I don't know, 45 minutes or so. And he said, okay, keep, keep doing it. And I don't know, I just kind of followed his instruction and it just unfolded. So I, I think for me too, I had the advantage that TNET had contact with the jhanas before. So I came in with an idea, well, well, these are, I, I know one person that's done it, so to me, they're not impossible. So, and I think people in those days came in, many thinking that it was close to impossible to do. So I just didn't hold it that way. Anyway, that's our story. Um, yes. Since so much of the success in this seems to have to do with the third eye or the pineal gland, can you talk to the issue of fluoridation in water and then any other suggestions that you have dietary or environmental to help uh, facilitate uh, a better practice? Thank you. Well, the first part of the question is about the, what we call the wisdom eye. And, and that is a, or can be, a part of the practice. Um, it doesn't necessarily open for everyone fully, but it can. Uh, and this is, you know, it's kind of very complicated, but it's just, it is part of the normal practice and can happen. And again, it's the normal place we would talk about the third eye here in the West. And it's not something that we can make happen. It just happens in a very natural way. Uh, speaking to things like fluoridation, I can't comment on that. I don't know really anything about that. Mm-mm. So, Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, and in terms of diet, I mean... It's hard. We are not vegetarians. We have both been vegetarians for long time periods and just found at a certain point we just weren't getting enough protein. So, um, but we don't eat, we aren't paleo diet people. 
just it's hard to eat that much, you know, protein, um, protein without just it having, in our view, a, a big toll on the earth. So we, even though we have a, we know a lot of spiritual teachers and practitioners choose that, which again is fine. We we don't have any judgment against it. For us, we just um, don't want to eat that much meat or even, you know, fish or chicken. And on the retreat, we do the side out. It wasn't eight precept retreat, meaning there were no meals after noon each day. So we all were eight precepts and. Um, that was on, on our retreats, we don't require it. It's optional because the Sidehouse yeah. perspective really was this: these are the rules. But he just said, you know, I, I want you to sit. I want you to practice. And so for us, it's like if, if you're somebody where if you don't eat afternoon, you spend the rest of the day thinking about food and you're hungry and you got <laughs> low energy, it doesn't make sense. It's like what supports your unfolding, you know, your own mm-hmm. deep unfolding, and that's specific to each person. So, but yeah, like and if, if you find it inspiring to do eight yeah. precepts, then that's great. For some so, people, it works beautifully. It's yeah. really a great benefit to them, but others, it's not. So, yeah. Somebody's got the mic. Oh, there you are. Um, speaking of counting, I found myself on a number of occasions uh, on 14. Ah, yes. <laughs> that's why so, we do eight. So, <laughs> well, it's not 27. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and I found it to be a little bit of a distraction because it's not something that I'm used to as far as a technique in meditation. So, I'm wondering if you had any guidance or insight into um, rating it in and sticking to eight. Mm-hmm. Well, this a lot of times we'll ask after the we do the sitting where we do the counting how it was. So, if anyone wants to comment on that, one of the great things about the counting, like when we go on retreat. We do counting the first couple, you know, at least the first day or two, because it it brings a discipline where you know. I mean, you you knew, and it was fourteen. You knew that how much, and if you hadn't been doing the counting, maybe you wouldn't have even noticed. You know, so so this is really we think it's a great for people who it works for. If it doesn't work for someone, then you know. Don't force it, but there's a way where just noticing that is going to maybe make you a little bit more alert the next time where, you know, you may go for a while and you're not going past eight, and then you may notice you're wandering again. But it just, it brings a consciousness to it that we find, it's just a little bit of extra discipline. Well, as Tina says, then you'll notice on retreat where you'll have a day where you never go past eight, for example. And so then it might be time to put it down, and then if people find they're floundering a little bit somehow, they'll reintroduce it and just get, mm-hmm. get that again, that crispness again, and then they can put it down. So it becomes a good skill set, too, if it, again, if it appeals to you. Some people mm-hmm. it's just really cumbersome and doesn't help at all. You, you know your concentration's improving when you can think in between the counting? Yeah, that's that's a sophisticated mind in that, you know, between one breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, <laughs> those thoughts just snap in there, yeah. You're welcome. Um, yeah. Thank you. It's kind of a dichotomous question, and when you're, when you're all speaking of uh, finding the true self, I'm very curious as to uh, how people who have found their true selves, number one, define it how they look at it, what, what they see it as, or think it may be in some kind of a, um, convince themselves that that's it. And then the other part of the question is the idea of having a true self 
is really absurd if there in fact is no self. So are people fooling themselves who have found their true self? Uh huh. Yeah, so you may notice that we don't use the term true self. We talk about true nature, deeper nature. Okay. Okay. Right. So that's different than, than a self. Oh, I different from Yeah, like within within the other lineages of Buddhism, Mahayana and Vajrayana, there's uh, a whole teaching on Buddha nature, mm. which is seen as our deeper nature. And I mean, how, that's not present in Theravadan Buddhism. I see. Now, how how would something like that be defined? True nature. Well, one could say, and this is. The classic understanding of what can be realized in, in realization within, within Theravadan Buddhism has more to do with emptiness. Mm-hmm. So you notice how the Buddha, when, he, when people would keep asking him what we are, if there was a soul, he, never, he would refuse to answer the question. He would just say what it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So this kind of points to some of what is discoverable the the emptiness of the self that we've known ourselves as is part of what can be discovered. So that's not saying a true self, mm-hmm. but there is a truth there. Mm. The, in fact, that there is emptiness. Is that the truth? Well, this is one one understanding, but within Buddha nature, there are other ways of... Um, there are other ways, like, for example, you could say that the mind unhindered, like, like for example, the Brahma Viharas, which is the heart unhindered, has the four, you have loving kindness, joy, compassion, equanimity, that when the heart is unhindered, any human circumstance that arises, this is kind of the natural response. When we're not hindered by distortions of the personality. So you could say that's part of our true nature. I see. Mm-hmm. It's not a self. No, I understand. Yeah, Thank so you. so these are the kinds of things we're pointing to. I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, the, the, the way that we can look at it too is we have a way when we say who are you, what's yourself, we have ideas about this. You know, we're based on our self-images, on our body, on body sensation, a variety of things. And meditatively, we can have experience where there's an absence of self, where we just simply don't have any self-referencing at all going on. That's one experience. And there's the experience we talk about as no self, which is an actual experience in the Zen tradition in particular. And that's where there's an awareness. There's, let me say it differently, there's a realization that there's an absence of self and something recognizes itself in that absence. So that's part of it. And then we can talk about Tina said emptiness experiences, and then there's unity experiences. Um, somehow I am everything. Yeah. There, I mean, what is it that is recognizing that there right. is no self? Right. That would be what we would call our deeper nature, because if you, if you do it in a reductionist way, if you subtract every way you know yourself, what's left? Right there. I mean, traditionally, within the Theravadan Buddhism, the skandhas are considered to be, you know, the the aggregates. There's sort of these conglomerations of things having to do with sensation and knowing and emotion, you know, feeling, tone, 
all these other things that make up what we are. But there's always going to be a sense of, you could say, first personal givenness that it's happening in this location. But that doesn't mean that we, the self we've taken ourselves to be, almost every tradition, you know, will point to the illusion of how we normally understand ourselves. So this is part of what can be realized, experienced either temporarily or in a more enduring way. Thank you. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, so uh, Shaila Catherine is another prominent um, teacher of um, the jhanas and concentration. And I wonder if you would say, if you want to, how your approach might differ from the way she teaches. Um, I, I personally don't know how she teaches. We, we've had some contact with her at Pollock events, um, but we've not studied with her and we've not seen her teach. So um, I, I, and we do have overlap of students, but most people don't say a whole lot about how, how it's different or how it's the same. So I, I personally can't answer that. Yeah, we don't really, I mean, we have contact with her, but she came into the Sidehouse teaching after we did, so, you know, we wouldn't have studied with her. But she she's, has a lot of scholarship, mm -hmm. and so my guess would be that she might emphasize more suttas and references to that, whereas we have a more psychological tone to our understanding. I mean, we don't really know for sure, though. And, and for us, you know, we, again, Tina mentioned this earlier, we didn't aspire to be teachers. We really liked being practitioners, and that was our picture. And the Sidao asked us to, and we felt gratitude to him in the practice that we said yes. But um, so anyway, we didn't sort of develop as teachers in that way where other people did. You know, I, th I think Shyla did a little more. So um, anyway. Okay, thank that's you. It. I've heard some Vipassana teachers say, well, you never get rid of your personality. And I'd like to know how you're using the term personality because you mentioned burning it up. Good question. Well, I'll, I'll go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think that uh, we would talk about personality, or at least I, I would, and I think Tina would agree, that we're talking about the ways that we know ourselves. We start as children, and as Tina said, in our birth family, there were sort of certain ways to behave where we got um, positive feedback and negative feedback. And so we learned to mostly do the positive feedback stuff. And also based on where we were hierarchically among siblings, there's all the dynamics of that that end up creating a lot of the psychological structures that we have. And we eventually take these psychological structures as a coherent whole. And we connect it to the physicality of our body and the sensations, my knee hurts, I'm hungry, you know, whatever. And also the thinking. We believe that because there's thoughts that we are the thinking. So when you combine all those together, I would say you end up with a personality. And what, part of what happens in spiritual practice is particularly, uh, in my experience, in this, in this practice, because you're so steeped in deep, deep silence, in stillness, 
that there's so much of a softening that happening happens with that stillness and silence that a lot of these senses of ourself, these self-images, begin to relax and a lot of things that are unconscious begin to float to the surface, both in terms of our own personality and also in terms of our deeper nature. So all of these things can begin to percolate in that silence. So I think absolutely we talk about purification of mind and part of that, in my opinion, is, pur is purification of personality. I think we're seeing in our students, people that have been with us for a while, we're seeing more and more refinement in their lives. They're getting more sophisticated about how to practice. They're just becoming shinier and shinier people in the world. So I, I, I would say that that's the benefit of this practice. It's true of other practices, but this is really, it's just um, because of that deep stillness, which you don't have in other practices, in my view, um, you, you really, these things really can change in dramatic ways. And as qualities of true nature arise and we realize them, which is different than just seeing, there's a way we, you know, they come into being in a way in our experience that we draw upon them or they arise, like the Brahma Viharas, these can be done in a way that they are qualities of true nature where they're responsive. Something happens and compassion naturally arises. It doesn't arise from our head, it arises from our depth, from our, our deeper nature in a way that's skillful. And so the same happens with other qualities of our deeper nature, true nature. And we begin functioning from that, let's say equally or at some times more from the deeper nature. So I, I do think the personality gets refined, absolutely. And can it go away entirely? I, I'm not really sure. I think it shows up. But again, we mentioned before, it isn't always believed. You know, once there's been enough experience with a deeper nature, even the personality stuff you've seen yourself do for decades, is like, oh, there, there I go again. You know, it's not, it just doesn't have its, the same hold. Yeah, I'll just say that within Theravadan Buddhism, the, if you want a more te a technical answer, there's four stages of enlightenment, and it's only at the fourth stage that the really deep, um, the deepest beliefs in, in a me are uprooted. So for teachers to say you don't get rid of your personality, there are very few people on the planet who are ever going to get to the fourth stage of enlightenment. So you, we aren't going to get rid of our personalities. But can, can pieces get digested even before any of the stages of enlightenment? There's, there are ways where this is part of the software upgrade. You know, we, we may not have the same identification with things that can weaken over the years. And... Um, material that has been undigested from our, our past can get digested to the point where it's not sort of coming up constantly from the unconscious for um, healing, really. And so this is part of what can happen is that those things can get digested and healed to where they aren't constantly coming back into our awareness, or we're not acting unconsciously from them as much. You know, it reduces, but it, it's a long journey. And so I would agree with whatever teacher said that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Can you talk about using this path, uh, the Samatha uh, path, uh, as a, or as a the Samatha practice, as a path 
to uh, attaining the first stage of enlightenment? A skillful way to use it? Well, traditionally it can't be used exclusively to the first stage of Theravadan enlightenment and that modeling. Exclusively, right. But it seems to me it has a piece or a part to play. Yeah, well, this is where, this is, I think, why concentration practice started getting introduced. You know, it's been like 15, 20 years now from the very beginning when it started getting introduced because the teachers could see that it's necessary to have that, that faculty developed. It's a muscle that if it's too weak, it doesn't matter how much Vipassana you do. It's, you need concentration to do Vipassana, too. So, um, and Vipassana builds concentration, but this is, it's more of a pure way of really building that particular muscle. Sometimes we talk about like the different practices. So instead of paintbrushes, we'll say, think of it like exercise. So any exercise is good for you, just like any meditation is good for you. But if you're doing cardio, one thing's being cultivated. If you're doing you know, strength training, another Pilates or yoga is going to do another. They're not exactly the same. So to, you know, if all you ever do is cardio and you never do strength training, you start getting older, you're going to lose muscle mass. So this is where in a complete um, path that leads to the first stage of enlightenment, uh, concentration is an enormous asset. And without it, it may... For, you know, for some people, it just may not be possible without a well-developed faculty of concentration. So that, that would be a way where this practice within the Theravadan, the traditional Theravadan understanding could be seen as uh, something that is extremely beneficial. Thank you. And there was um, somebody over here. Is there still somebody over here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's been going like this, okay. so I'll make sure to get him. Um, so I guess in some sense today, I felt like we sort of were outlining this linear path of experiences and states with a lot of clarity and detail. And I guess I'm, I'm sort of trying to reconcile that with maybe my prior thinking, which is that coming to practice with strong expectations uh, really feels like grasping or, or striving and sort of maybe um, can block some of the more interesting qualities. And so I guess I, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, the gentleman who was over here before asking about the, you know, the clinging and the, the striving. And I mean, when we became teachers, it was already out there. So we sort of had to make a judgment call. How do we talk about it? Do we even talk about the jhanas, or do we just talk about concentration? And um, ultimately, because it was already out there, we felt that there were so many misconceptions that we had to talk about it, frankly. We're, we're trying to create clarity where there's been a lot of muddled confusion because of kind of some of the things we talked about earlier around this practice and how it was not presented in a direct way to lay people for a really long time. 
That said, there, this is one of the dangers of this practice is to have expectations. And this is why we really try to keep emphasizing this is a present moment practice and really all that needs to happen is to just know that you're breathing in this area. That's it. <laughs> really, I mean, this is why we could come and just say focus here and give a little description and not say anything else. But I don't know that that would really, um, that's not really the fullness of the teaching either. So I, I guess our encouragement would be, it's, I mean, the same is really true of Vipassana. It's no different. There are attainments, there is a progression in Vipassana. And um, there's a potential for striving there too. So part of it is that we feel that at some point in the path, the desire to get somewhere is what has to be purified. And whether one knows about attainments or not, that desire to get somewhere, this is a movement of the ego. The ego will always find somewhere to get, whether there are attainments or not. It always wants yeah. to be someplace but here. Yeah. But, but we also view our job as teachers is to really give as, as clear a conceptual understanding as we can about the practice. Because then, mm-hmm. as a body, Buddhist practitioners, we start having clear understanding of what we're talking about. But when you go to retreat with us, we, we do some of these same teachings, but really, our, our function is focus here. How can we support you staying here in whatever way that means? So ultimately, that, and it's hours and hours of sitting in a very quiet, still, beautiful meditation hall. And by beautiful, I mean just the stillness. It's just perceptible. You're, you're, I mean, the last the month long, literally, it was the first evening where we come in and just, you know, hi, everybody. And we walked in there, and it was just deep. It was just like, wow, this is really something. And it just stayed that way and just continued getting deeper for the whole month. It was, it was, and that's profound. And people find it very reassuring because, say you're struggling with some issue, you come in and there's this great field of silence, but it's warm-hearted silence where you can sit and feel that everyone's helping hold you in this place you're struggling. And then when you're in a place where you're going deeply, that's what you're contributing to the field. So it's just this great... Great. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. No. Just say. Yeah. Can you hand to the mic? Yeah. Christina has done many retreats with us, including the month long we just talk and our mentoring group. So we know each other well. Yeah. So she's, she, she's been in the meditation hall quite a lot. Yeah. I, I would just add that the field that you were talking about of feeling held and the sincerity and the deepness of the and the self like inquiry that was going on in that practice. You, you talked about it at the beginning of the month long. We could feel it before we even got there. Yeah. And I thought it was because I moved to California. But <laughs> then... <laughs> we try and tell people that in the Bay Area. That is part of the Bay Area experience, right? Yeah. And that was true. We could feel the field coalescing before we, the retreat started. But there were probably out of 40 people, I don't know what it was, but about three quarters had done one or up to maybe five or six retreats with us. So we had a lot of returning people, and that really helped seed the field when we all arrived. So back here. Those comments raised more questions. <laughs> um, my questions have changed every time I think of one. But uh, along these lines, um, how is westernized style Buddhism different from um, Bo- the way 
Buddhists are in the eastern part of the world, and does intellectual understanding and education change the teachings or the understanding of it as far as, you know, the lay people getting it, and then the, was there a reason that maybe you needed to have an intellectual understanding as well? Yeah, we, we haven't really practiced in Asia, so just to be clear about that, I mean, we studied with the site out here in California, but we have actually, I think we're some of the few Americans who've been asked to teach the Burmese community in the Bay Area, um, which we've done a number of times. And so there's, it, it's, it is very different. There, there's much more of a, um, preference for monastics within what we've experienced as well as in, in Asia from what we understand of that. There's um, a more traditional orientation to the practice. Um, and it's kind of, this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but like the Saito has come to the Bay Area and done his own self-retreats a number of times. and. Most of those times when he's been here, he's asked to see us during his self-retreat. So we'll go there like once a month, and people will bring him food every day. Burmese people bring him food, and he loves. He never wants us to bring him food because they love getting the merit from bringing him food, and he always wants us to tell them to meditate <laughs> because they know they know so much more about Buddhist history and who the Buddhas cousin was and things, you know, a lot of detail about Buddhism, but they, for the, in a broad, as a broad community, a lot of people don't actually meditate as much. And then, like, in a country like Burma, conversely, there's a view that everyone should do a three-month retreat. So you have, like, thousands of people going and doing three-month retreats. So it's the same in Thailand, too. Yeah, right? so yeah, it's, I mean, it's a kind of, it's very different than how we experience it here, where for us it's a lot about meditation, and he loves that. I mean, it's one, one of the reasons why he likes teaching Westerners. It's because we meditate, and we really like to meditate, and that's really where the fruit of the practice is. Well, one of the differences, too, when the Saito had us come teach at the Forest Refuge, we taught the first week of a four-month retreat he was doing. And we taught. He did the first night, and we did the, nest, the rest of the first week. And, and we were there teaching. It was, he was there, and there were two other Saitaos there, which in Burma, you're a Saitao after 30 years uh, in robes. And so we had three Saitaos there, and it was probably the only time any of them had ever been in front of lay teachers. It just, it just is really not done in parts of Asia, and Burma in particular. So it was really quite, quite revolutionary in that regard. And we decided Tina would go first also. So we had a woman. Yeah, so we on. had three Sayadaos sitting there listening to us give talks. I mean, it was, people were like, we didn't even get how, what a freak was, incident yeah. this was, you know, that um, this would never, ever happen. Yeah, in, and in, in the West, Burma. really, our model isn't so much for monastics, and it's really much more of a lay-oriented movement. Um, there are monastics here, but we just don't, that's our culture. We don't have it the way they do, where really a lot of people will give food or give money or give robes to monastics, and it's, again, it's, it's merit. They're really accumulating merit for a good rebirth. And if you went around, you know, the West and said, how much merit do you think you have? You know, we'd be like, who cares? You know, I don't, I don't care what right. merit I have. Yeah, the whole merit thing is, is huge. 
which so, so they wouldn't care. I mean, very but here it's it's about practice. You know, we're really doing our own our own unfolding. That's really what we're motivated by mostly. So it's very it's very different. Yeah. But there's, there is a beauty for people we know who love studying there to go to a culture and see it be so, just Buddhism is so, it's steeped in that. It's very inspiring to people to see that. And, and for people that really feel motivated and want to try monastic life for a period of time, you can do it in Asia. You can go and get ordained and you know, have that experience as a monastic. Tina did during our retreat. I had thought yeah. I would, but there weren't enough monks at the retreat for me to ordain. And... Candidly, I was glad at the end I hadn't because there was a whole lot of uh, monastic rules that would have had to been followed, and I was really more interested in the meditation than I was in, you know, being looking like a good monk or you know doing all the stuff. So um, anyway, and that ultimately was for Tina too. The same thing. She really, luckily, the Saidao was supportive of us practicing, and didn't really get too much of a stickler around the monastic rules for you. So uh, anyway, it's a good experience for people to have, but. There are these differences. But one last thing about the Burmese community. Often when we used to be around them, they decided how pretty quickly broadcast our attainments. Yeah, uh, so I mean, the, we hadn't even finished the retreat, and there were people inviting us to dinner so they could serve our food so and we would eat it us. Yeah. because that gave them merit. Well, I and, mean, and, it was, we thought, aren't there any secrets around here, you know? Um, well, well, but the, it was a big, it was a big, milestone for them to realize that it was possible. Well, more than that, though, is they were slightly nervous around us, and we couldn't figure out why. And so we would sort of ask, well, you know, and, and finally somebody said, are you reading our thoughts right now? <laughs> and, and we said to them, that wouldn't be polite. <laughs> but, but they were seriously worried about that, that we were using psychic abilities around them. And that's one of the concerns. I mean, both they're excited by it and they're also nervous about it. So it's a very different orientation, yeah. Can you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, one of the challenges that has come up for me uh, today and, and throughout has been kind of an intense fear um, of, of practicing. And mm -hmm. I think some of that revolves around this, uh, hearing and experiencing to some uh, degree this uh, what's been described as the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you if you know much about that, but it's just kind of periods of of real unpleasantness that will pass. You know, they they kind of come and go, but when they're there, it's it's pretty scary. And it, at times, I've wanted to stop practicing because of it, but um, but I'm glad that I didn't because you know it, it's it's always better after some practice. But wondering if you could speak to that. Is that doing a certain practice, or um, is it more general? It could be in, in any practice, yeah. One of, well, one of the practices that's used to meet that is some of the Brahma Vihara's practices. Because, uh, again, as we teach it, we're, we're getting in contact with these qualities, the loving-kindness, the uh, joy, the compassion, and particularly equanimity that we're learning to allow those to arise from our deeper nature. And this, they become helpful in these kinds of circumstances, that there are various points in practice and in many people's unfolding where they have experiences like this. And so it, it, it is normal in that respect, so that's one aspect. And the other is if you, you, know, you only have to be with it as, sort of as much as you can. 
and then you lighten up on the practice. You go out for a walk. You go out and meet friends. You know, and also you recognize maybe this is time for me to cultivate some compassion for myself or equanimity. So there's a skillfulness too in, in again, titrating how much you experience. You don't need to sort of throw yourself into the volcano. That's not always skillful. Um, but but it, is, it is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we talked earlier just in passing about the, the fear that can come up, yeah. which is part of, you could say that's related to a dark night of the soul, that that's kind of a, a larger body of, of work. But th there is, when, when the practice gets to a certain level of depth, there are fundamental things about how we've understood reality and ourselves and what we are that can change and that's that's a big change yeah. and there's there's a loss there can be a loss in that but I mean there's something that is gained but one doesn't really know that on the front end and um, so it's you know, this is really, this is why the Buddha gave us different practices and, and like the way the Pauxite out teaches before Vipassana, one does the, what's called the protective meditations. And this is really what those were designed for, metta, to be able to have a loving orientation towards ourselves, really, and compassion. Um, recollection of the Buddha to be inspired that others have done this and I can do it. Uh, a recollection of death. So we like we had a teacher in training who attended our month long and he died a month after our month long. He was 60, he was in perfect health. And he didn't think when he got up that morning he was gonna die that day. I mean, it was really hard for us because we envisioned 10 or 20 years of teaching with him. So you know, this inspires us to not waste time. Mm -hmm. And then the, the foulness meditation, but this really lets us detach from the body in a way that says, you know, how can I really know what I am beyond that? So, you know, these are all ways of sort of having compassion for ourselves and yet um, being in touch with the urgency of what we really care about of just making that discovery of what we really are. And it can be helpful to hold it also that you are not your fear. It's not the same. You're experiencing, you're in right. contact with fear, but you're not fear. Yeah. You're a lot more than that. Yeah. So we'll, maybe we'll have one more question and then we'll... Um, I'm wondering if okay. the samatha path will unfold if a different object of attention is used than uh, the way it is in your tradition with uh, focusing on the breath at the nostril and upper lip. For example, if the focus were to be the breath at the belly or the chest, would, would that also um, result in the same path and unfold in jhana? In, in, in our tradition, no. We've asked the side out this question ourselves, and the awareness has to be developed in the Anapana region, the breath here. Because I mentioned there's that nimitta that will eventually show up, and part of the first jhana is this comes in and it merges with the breath, and then that becomes the object, the merge, what we call the Anapana nimitta. It's the merged breath nimitta. 
And that, at, when it's ripe, draws awareness into first jhana. So if it's in the belly, the nimitta won't arise. It won't show up. So in our tradition, you must have the nimitta for jhana to arise. Well, and even beyond our tradition, I mean, I, I haven't researched every single presentation of Vipassana out there, but I don't know of a single case of Anapanasati being taught in the Samatha where it's not in this area. It's when it's belly, chest, that's always considered either the four elements mm-hmm. or Vipassana. So I, I haven't heard of any case where that wouldn't be considered that. Maybe there are. I, I don't know of that. We don't. We we also don't read exhaustively on this, as you can imagine. We, if we did, we'd be reading about jhana practice all the time. People were doing so. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll have one more, and then we'll come to our closing here. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Um, can you comment um, on how this um, practice benefits all beings? Sure. Well. Uh, the easy answer is that we, even though we take ourselves to be separate, I mean, I, I think modern science tells us that's not actually true. We actually are in energetic contact with all of life. But more specifically, as we're doing this kind of a practice and we're deepening and we're having experiences of the spaciousness and some of the ways, again, I mentioned before, that we self-reference or absent um, we're really in contact with the larger field in a way that we know we're a part of this field. As we were saying with Christina, we could all feel the field forming for our retreat. So the field is not me, it's not Christina, it's not Tina, it's you know, the combination somehow. So absolutely, if, if and we notice this on retreat, if people are practicing, whatever's going on contributes to that field. And of course, that's... we. We don't have a container over our field. It's it's indivisible with the field at large. It's just there's times we're more aware of it and times less aware. It doesn't mean it's any less in operation, though. Yeah, so just another way of saying that is that from the viewpoint of reality, there is no... When we are purifying, when our own consciousness is being purified, when when what's in this location is doing less harm on the inner, inwardly, that is affecting all of consciousness. So it may look like there's these separate people meditating, and there are separate bodies, there's no question about that. Um, But there is a way in which we aren't separate. And when when we undertake practice, the change that's happening locally is affecting globally consciousness. So we really believe that, not just like in a nice New Agey metaphorical way, but in an actual, um, factual way. That, I mean, look around at the world. There's a lot of really scary things going on. And when we practice, we're actually going to dedicate the merit. That'll be the last thing we do. Um, we are offsetting a lot of the harm that's happening in the world. And then just on a more practical level, as we become less uh, identified with our own places of, um, that are less refined, so we disidentify from that, we're going to do less harm in the world. Right. And so just from a very practical standpoint, that 
is an inevitable development as one practices for longer and longer. And it's not an uncommon experience in the territory of realization that the realization can have a fullness in a sense that it feels as though, even though it's happening at a particular location, a certain consciousness, awareness, all of consciousness is affected. I mean, the felt sense is everybody, every, every consciousness takes a step with that realization in one location. So that's part of the, the experiential of that, too. So yeah, we think it absolutely is inter, inter, intermixed completely. So um, before we do our dedication of merit, we just have a couple of announcements. And thank you all for being here today. It's really been 